0: I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. Today's podcast is a really lively one. As I was listening back, I found that there are parts of this recording that are almost breathless. Now, that's entirely down to the energy levels of who I'm interviewing. When I met David Walsh and Graham Newman of London-headquartered MGA CFC Underwriting... They were still buzzing after a significant fundraise that has given their business a valuation of roughly $3.5 billion on a multiple that makes CFC look more like a tech company than an insurer. To put this in context, this valuation is 10 times what it was in the last investment round just over four years ago, and probably more than double when they were first on the show just over a year ago. David and Graham had also just come through a calendar year in which they had posted 50% GWP growth and in which they had set up a Lloyd syndicate to support their underwriting, which is projected to breach the $1 billion GWP barrier this year. We talk about the pair's ambitious growth plans in the ultra-dynamic and dislocated cyber insurance space, and how they feel the market is bifurcating between those carriers that are doubling down on the product and really grappling with the ransomware epidemic, and those that frankly are not. But perhaps more interesting than all the valuable details, in this podcast we get a deep view into this duo's growth mindset and their firm's almost unique relationship with technology that makes it one of the industry's very few native insurtechs. From what follows, if anything, the business's growth looks likely to accelerate more from here. I know many power listeners consume podcasts at one and a half times speed to boost their listening productivity, but today's interviewees move so fast that I would recommend slowing this one down a bit to be able to catch it all. Oh, and one last detail. It's David who is the first of the two to answer a question. Enjoy the
1: podcast. Hi, I'm Rick J. Lindsay, Chairman and CEO of Claims Direct Access, otherwise known as CDA. We all read about the claims nightmares in the United States of America, social inflation, nuclear verdicts, and the sky is falling. Hardly a day goes by without the news of reserve strengthening at major carriers. However, it's not all bad news. In the United States of America, we have the best legal system in the world, which allows you to fight frivolous claims and litigation and come out on top. In this kind of environment, you must get smarter about how you handle your claims and who your partners are. You have to move fast and be robust. CDA has been handling claims for over 40 years nationwide and has a team of 46 claims professionals, including 12 highly skilled attorneys and litigators. We have handled cases for major Lloyd syndicates since 1994, as well as U.S.-based major carriers, and have closed over 70,000 claims since 1994 nationwide. Not settling frivolous litigations is a must. CDA Claim service means going the extra mile, handling claims quickly and vigorously with a proactive approach. Why not get in contact now to see how CDA can do the same amazing work for you and your partners that they do for me every day? Visit www.claimsdirectaccess.com today.
0: David and Graham, welcome back to The Voice of Insurance. Really good to see you, Mark. Thanks Thanks. for
2: inviting us. Thanks for having us, Mark.
0: It was just over a year ago that we last spoke. At the end of last year, you were pencilling in, for 2021, 20% growth on $400 million of GWP. How does that turn out? And then what's your projection now going into 2022? Into
3: 2021 was a fantastic year for us, Mark. I think the $400 million was actually a pound number. So anyway, we've grown... It was fa- it pounds? couldn't yeah. speak, so sorry. The facts are we've grown 50% premium to $800 million to use your currency. So that's really a fantastic year, obviously. We've clearly been massively helped by rate. And if you break down the 50% volume in premium growth, it's basically 40% rate 10% exposure reduction, 20% volume growth. Wow. And then how's that breaking down in terms of classes? Is it, has it been cyber? Cyber's been the strongest grower and obviously it's got the strongest rate rises, but we've got really strong rate rises in a number of areas, pretty much across the board, which is what makes it pretty unprecedented. I presume you've got this
0: momentum going, so what's it going to be in 22, do you yeah, think? Yeah, so
3: the budget for 2022 is to grow the premium by 40%, up to over 1.1 billion. And that's a billion dollars. Sorry, dollars, yeah. Over a billion dollars. Over a billion, 1.1 billion dollars, in fact. Obviously, lots of
0: other things have happened since we last spoke. You've had a pretty mega funding deal. I was talking about growth straight away because obviously, you know, you're a growth company. The next phase in your growth has just been some very grown-up funding. Run us through that very, very quickly. Obviously, that's been in the news a lot over the
3: last four or five months. What was the real reason why you did it? Is it just to fund the growth? Well, as you know, we actually very cash-generative business because we grow almost entirely organically and we've done three acquisitions in our whole lifetime of 22 years and they're really bolt-on aqua hires to increase capability. We're not buying a bit. So because we're cash-generative we don't actually need to do these deals. These deals really we do for two reasons. They provide a partial liquidity event for our investors and our staff and they also mean that we can recut the equity to create really exciting new share programs for other staff. And so one of the most exciting things about doing this deal is actually we're going from 175 staff shareholders to around 375 in just the last month. And I think that's that's a really colossal thing for us because that's a big part of our culture is that broad, deep, share ownership which means almost everybody yeah I mean we're approaching 600 staff now so it's yeah approaching two-thirds or so of our staff and it's been our stated ambition to always do that and so of course the five-year journey really helps that it just recuts it each time and then we have an annual event where we hand out more shares to staff as they come up the ranks and the other thing that happened obviously was you starting your own syndicate Yep, another little thing of starting our own syndicate. Yeah, I think you, you kind of slightly caught me out on that one in the podcast last time. Yeah.
0: Anyway, <laughs> look, yes, I'm sure I, I'm sure all, all will be forgiven, but I do remember a specific question. It was at the time, obviously, a lot of MGAs were sourcing their own capital this time last year, and I know hot topic questions, and I said I asked both of you. Um, you got any immediate plans to...
3: Yeah, and and to be fair... And you said us, no. I, th- I said no, yeah. <laughs> and to be fair to us... <laughs> excuse what me. changed, basically? Well, in fact, we had our... I think you gave us the idea, in fact, uh, really. <laughs> so thanks a lot. It was a very good one. <laughs> Probably the best idea. Well, We've don't come to me time. if it makes lots of losses. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we won't do that. Don't worry. Um, well, fun enough, yeah, so our first meeting with Lloyds was just after that podcast in December. And to their great credit, because they knew we were in a hurry, because everything we do renews 1st of July, to their great credit, we were minded to approve by April. So we went from cradle to grave in four months, basically. But I suppose the hypothesis behind why we set up the syndicate, to to your other question, was that we felt there was no shortage of capital that wanted to back our risks. But there was, a year ago, a worry that there's a shortage of globally regulated capital, which, as you know, is in much shorter supply, and being heavily controlled by Lloyds at the moment. So our theory was, if we could create this transformer vehicle, where we could go to any form of capital, pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, family investment vehicles, you name it, and through providing an access through Lloyd's, get global insurance licenses from Lloyd's and get CFC's global distribution network and global insurance platform, that would actually be really attractive to those forms of capital. And I think we were proven, the hypothesis was proven good, because we Created the syndicate in four months, as I said, uh, and actually in less than two months, we attracted over a hundred million dollars worth of risk capital from an ILS fund, from a pension plan, and various reinsurers. That's using that London Bridge, thing yeah, thing, isn't it? yeah. I think we were the first to use the London Bridge facility as well. It's yeah.
0: interesting. So it's not necessarily this idea that you have to eat your own cooking. You're still it's effectively sourcing third party capital, but just using a different route.
3: Yeah, I was never a big proponent of this you know eat your own cooking versus don't eat your own cooking thing writing a good portfolio here a profitable portfolio here has always been the number one goal we always felt very aligned with our carriers for various mechanisms one of course our profit commission two just the longevity in any class (laughs) actually now that I have a foot in both camps I can actually say that I was right I feel that we eat as much cooking through the profit commission mechanism as by the fact that we are absolutely completely aligned with our carriers through that mechanism but it is useful as you say and I think the fact that we can show complete alignment actually does make a difference so if
0: you're a bad cook you end up getting food poisoning one way or another whether it's your own cattle <laughs> or not you just simply if you make lots of losses one you don't get any proper commission no one ever renews with exactly. you and you are you saying it's not necessarily as relevant as some people think?
3: Yeah, I, I think that's right. We've learned a lot in creating this Lloyds syndicate, and I'm really looking forward to the journey. We've clearly been quite lucky in our timing. I think, you know, class of 21 is hopefully going to be a great year in Lloyds. But as I say, you know, we feel we... we just I suppose for number, us, our number one goal in all of our portfolios of insurance is to write a profitable book, regardless of the structure behind it. So with this capital raise, is it
0: right to assume, obviously, it's not money to be putting into your underwriting vehicles on your own account. It's for more of the same growth in the old sense, just growing the business, growing the MGA.
3: That's exactly what it is. So for us, basically the new investors and the old investors who've rolled forwards have bought into our business plan, which is basically exactly what you said, more of the same. More of the same means doubling down in our current insurance classes. It means accelerating and globalising our cyber instant response function or division and it also means building out our admitted platform in new york and in san francisco and it might mean a few bolt-on acquisitions whether they're cybersecurity capabilities things like that but as you say it's basically more of the same exactly right is
0: it a distraction though being a lloyd's regulated entity having to do returns and goodness knows all you know RDSs, is and is it a distraction do you think when you're trying you know and you've got that core build the core cfc business
3: i think when we were smaller that was the theory why we didn't do it yes that it would be a distraction but of course we're now of the scale now where we have a massive team here whose job it is to source risk capital and people who look after those things we have people who do this and of course yeah, you know, also, a lot of the functions are also outsourced to Asta, because we sit under their umbrella. So the combination of the fact that we had already all these functions in-house for the bits we need to do and the fact that Asta very capably do the other side of things means it hasn't been a big change, actually. Because you were already sort of a synthetic insurance company. Exactly. People like to think of MGAs as one type of animal, one thing, but it's a very, very broad church. And what we are and have been for some time is an absolute virtual insurer, which did everything from product origination all the way through claims handling, instant response, actuarial analysis, you name it, except take the risk, which of course now we do. So does this
0: make you a hybrid carrier seem to be one of the things that have emerged of in 2021?
3: Does it make you one of those? And what do you think of that model, by the way? Yeah, I think it is a futuristic model. But then again, I think it's fair to say that big insurers I think with scale, you end up inevitably becoming hybrid. If you think of a big insurer, they have an insurance company. They probably have a Lloyd's syndicate as well. They own MGAs. They have third-party risk providers. They reinsure great swathes of their book and get overriding commission. Ha-ha, looks a bit like an MGA to me. So they are hybrid. And I think we are becoming, therefore, more hybrid. Maybe we've come from the other end that they tend to come from. So we are becoming more hybrid. And I think that's been a really important part, step in our journey. So you've got all this new capital
0: burning a hole in your pocket. It's, it's really more about expanding that classical CFC. Is it in the States most of this where you're going to be? It's, it's all about kind of human capital, is it really? In terms of you hiring top people all over the place. Is this the main focus of the US? Hi, Mark. I thought I'd just jump in here. Because there's a a machine that we're really building, which is this
2: business here in London, where we have the kind of product development and origination, the actuarial and pricing function, the risk management functions. And critically, we haven't talked about this yet, a lot of the technology. And we're building that here, Century in London. There's a ton of investment going in there. And that's people. A lot of that's driven by the talent and the software that we can get our hands on. But then we have this growing infrastructure outside of London. So Dave referenced the US admitted platform. We have an operation onshore in the US because we need that for a regulatory function. We've got a regulatory function established in Europe. We've also got our security divisions established in Australia, the US and the UK.
0: So out of all those, where's the main focus or is it just everywhere?
2: It's always a little bit of everything, right, Mark. We've never had a shortage of projects and obviously our challenge is to constantly prioritize and invest in the right ones. There's a huge amount of effort and energy, which has been true I think back from ninety-nine, two thousand, but in terms of investment in our underlying technology, we have this large complex insurance platform that can write pretty much any line of insurance business. In pretty much any country in the world, as Dave referenced before, using company market capacity, using Lloyd's capacity, using third-party capital, it's quite an extraordinary beast that's being built. And over 25% of our staff are now in technology and data, and you're going to see that growing and growing as a percentage of the the people at CFC.
0: More recently, you had um, some technology acquisitions, and particularly looking at cyber, trying to get more into the full service or getting much closer to the client, to the actual cyber security And you said, I think, when you were last on the program that that was the way things were going, that you felt you had to get closer to the risk itself and to engineer that risk, particularly in cyber. Is that the thinking? I had Adrian Cox on the program before Christmas saying something similar, saying that Beasley wants to become the FM global of cyber. Are you following a similar path? And is it all because of the ransomware? I
2: I really like what Adrian said and totally buy into his view that it's incredibly important that the specialist players in the market maintain product integrity. As you know, Mark, we're starting to see a slightly bifurcated market. There are, what I would see is the specialist players that have invested really, really heavily in the infrastructure. And I'd like to think slightly saw this coming. It's not in response to the change in ransomware, the 12 to 18 months. We began this investment a lot before that, as did a lot of the other specialist players about building out that core infrastructure knowing that the risk landscape would change. So there's a ton of investment that's gone in from us, from many of our competitors. And in that sense, we are all looking to preempt risk, to proactively identify exposure our clients have, to try and fix those problems before they turn into major claims, to get better at true technical underwriting, as in gathering large numbers of data points that we can analyze to see what truly drives risk. So there's a part of the market that's doing that. And then there's a part of the market that, frankly, is chronically underinvested in this as a class of business that sees it as just another insurance line and doesn't have the claims infrastructure, the technical underwriting infrastructure, the response infrastructure, the proactive security infrastructure. They're left effectively with two standard tools, change the price Reduce terms and conditions, and that's the bifurcation we're seeing. Some people run for the hills with sublimits, co-insurance, major exclusions around common vulnerabilities. That's not the direction that we're heading. It's not the direction that Adrian Cox articulated in the, in the podcast before. It's like a fire under us. to try trying to exclude fire. Absolutely. It just doesn't feel right. And, I, and just on that, I do get personally frustrated. I see now, you know, you've seen lots of these kind of critical vulnerabilities announced. But by the way, there's been hundreds of thousands. There are over 160,000 critical vulnerabilities out there in, in the world which are exploited. And this trend now to, oh, we'll put an exclusion on for this vulnerability that's popped up, doesn't feel right. And our problem as an industry is that gets picked up in the popular media that's how the security community that's how our clients think we operate as an industry and i think we get really bad press for that i'm pleased to see that there are a number of major insurers that are committed to this as a line of business and they're trying to maintain that product integrity and find ways to price the risk to manage the risk and that has to be the way forward It's, it's all too easy if you're a major insurance company just to say, look, cyber's small. It's de minimis in terms of the billions and billions of dollars worth insurance they're
0: writing. And you say, well, someone else will figure that out. We as an industry have to work this out to remain relevant. Yeah, we had um, Lucy Clark on the program. No one could be closer to clients than their broker in this sense. And she was saying that the, the real problem with the cyber is that we end up with a product that doesn't make any sense to any of my clients anymore.
2: Yeah, and, and I think that obviously if the second half of the market were to take over which I just don't think they will by the way I think the direction of travel is we're actually going to see an increase in consolidation in the cyber market I think those players that are looking to exclude all the major exposures can't survive it's a product that isn't relevant there is still a, a significant number of players in the cyber market that have incredibly relevant product they're maintaining product integrity and I think what we're seeing to Dave's point about capital earlier is capital starting to concentrate and to increasingly back the players that have the infrastructure that's exactly how it should be we're seeing that within Lloyd's itself. Again, the way that they're regulating the market is focusing upon the players that have the scale, the infrastructure, the capability. And so I think we'll see a concentration of the cyber market. And I think that's a good thing because scale is really important.
0: We've had this fantastic growth class that had a very nice low loss ratio was making lots of profits for everybody. And, And now we've come to this major inflection point and it separated the fair weather friends from those who really doubled down. And you're in the more doubling down, and you believe in this product, and you're going to invest even more into it, quadrupling down, Mark. I think <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. So, what is the chance of 2022 being the year that? the cyber market slowly undislocates itself.
2: Yeah, I think it's an interesting market at the moment. It's worth just exploring that dislocation and the reasons behind it because there are a number of factors coming together. Clearly, there are a couple of factors on the supply side. So I don't think it's escaped anyone's attention, anyone who reads the insurance press that the cyber market has had a massive change in the last 12 to 18 months. And that's been driven by a fundamental change in the underlying risk landscape. Ransomware has gone from a small proportion of the loss from being a mass exploitation, low-value claim to being a much more targeted, and I can come back to that, high-value type of crime. It is the dominant, predominant form of crime, I would argue, in the world right now. And that has changed incredibly quickly, which is the, the difference with cyber. When I mean, we talk about climate change, we talk about claims inflation, there is no other class of insurance that has seen claims inflation at the speed which the cyber market has seen. And clearly, that's resulted in pause of thought. Actuaries and pricing teams have had to take a step back and look at their view of claims inflation. And as you're going up on an exponential curve, everyone's waiting for that to plateau before they double down in the class. Underwriters are reassessing their approach. You've seen a shift in the types of crimes, and now they need to make sure that their approach and their selection is is still valid. Couple that on the supply side with this fear of systemic, and I'm sure we'll come back to systemic risk, but COVID has really focused all of our collective minds on non-damaged BI And clearly that feeds its way into cyber. You can't help but think we've seen what a human virus can do, what can a computer virus do. So both of those factors have really restricted the supply. At the same time, the demand is growing exponentially. You've got that underlying demand. Cyber is still bought by probably less than 15% of companies globally, this huge, huge runway, it's crept into every single executive's top three list of risks. So it's incredibly relevant. And as claims grow, clearly demand is going to grow for the product. And then couple that with the regulatory focus and attention on silent cyber. So this concept of understanding cyber risk throughout your portfolio, which has resulted in exclusions forcing more into the primary insurance market and people pricing it back in seeking more reinsurance. So you've just got a very simple problem that the demand is considerably outstripping today's
0: supply. So you're doubling, quadrupling down on this business, which has had this ransomware problem, a massive problem that's come out quite quickly in a way that only obviously in a digital world can come out very, very, very fast. Is everything therefore contingent on you getting to grips with ransomware and solving this problem and stopping these hackers hacking? It's contingent upon us continually being able to tackle these problems. I mean, are you
2: confident that you can win? If we can tackle the ransomware problem, I don't think we're going to solve crime. Crime isn't going away. Cr- crime has been around as long as kind of people have been around on this, on this planet. So we, we're never going to solve crime. What we have to do is be able to react to these things quickly and tackle them quickly. This isn't the first time this has happened. So you think back to 2014-15, if we'd had this conversation right then, we'd have been talking about credit card theft. And there was a space of huge thefts from U.S. retail. Now, U.S. retail was the major buyer of cyber insurance back then. That was a massively dislocating moment. That lasted about 18 to 24 months before the market could recalibrate pricing, before we could re-understand the risk controls that were required. I think the insurance market played its part in changing behavior. We're seeing that right now. In fact, at a governmental, at a law enforcement level, we're seeing some really big takedowns of some of these major criminal gangs or more importantly, their infrastructure. And that has been directly influenced and directly assisted by the insurance industry. So what we're seeing is the insurance industry working hand in hand with government, global law enforcement to really tackle this problem. And I think that's a, it's an incredible thing that we just don't talk about or focus on enough. So we, have, as an industry, have not solved the problem. I don't think we will ever solve the problem of crime, but we can find
0: ways to tackle it, to manage it, to control it. That's that's what insurance is all about. So it gives you comfort because this is a dynamic risk. But at least you can fight back in a dynamic way. Whereas if you're a property calendar writer. Hurricanes still happen, you can't stop them happening. Do you feel confident that you can get in and stop hackers hacking?
2: Absolutely. This comes back to what I was talking about this investment in the infrastructure. I don't think you can write this class of insurance as a primary player without significant investment. That's investment in your response network, your claims management strategies, and most importantly, in your profiling, your scanning, your threat intelligence consumption. It's a really complex market, and the barriers to entry are phenomenally high. But do I think we're going to solve the problem? Can we remove all hacking?
0: Absolutely not. But can we manage the problem? I believe we can. Going back to the original question, do you think 2022 will be the year when capacity stops going down, at least, and coverage stops disappearing and drying up? And that clients are going to be able to get meaningful products from you and other similar, more kind of hardcore players. And that the market might be able to start growing in terms of exposure and meet that demand.
2: I think customers can absolutely get meaningful coverage from ourselves and a number of our peers right now. There's certainly parts of the market which are tougher than others. I think right now we've got a real challenge in the the large corporate end of the market where essentially the credible primary markets have almost completely disappeared everyone's decided they want to write excess of 100 million which is a real problem if you <laughs> if you want to build towers someone has to write the primary so
0: I, I, is it going to be the client itself writing the primary effectively within a captive or whatever uh,
2: yeah, and obviously we're seeing a migration out to captives but obviously that's been insurance carrying
3: it's interesting mark because I'm a big fan of your podcast as you know and I listen to most of them and you know they're all senior underwriters and senior brokers Every single one I've listened to, when they answer any of your questions, even the people who run businesses with small, medium, and big-sized customers answer every single one of your questions thinking about big customers. And your questions all are... I listened to Lucy Clarks this morning. she's brilliant. Every single question she answered was about all big customers, which is fine because that's her role in, in uh, that organization. The vast majority of our customers, 99% of our customers by number, are five to 15 people. They're micro businesses. And the questions you're asking about captives and if coverage is available and terms and conditions are really not relevant. We also insure some of the biggest cyber risks on the planet, which it is relevant, but it's less than 1% of our customers. But it is interesting because the weight of the market in London answers all your questions, always thinking about big customers. Now, big customers are important, <laughs> but they're not the be-all and end-all. So for those
0: customers, you can give them meaningful you know, $1 million policies and that's fine. And if it? there's
3: one class of insurance where a customer might understand that their premium has gone up, surely it's cyber when every single day they're reading in their newspapers about ransomware is exploding.
2: Yeah, it's not not surprising to see pricing up by let's say a hundred percent when the underlying exposure is up four, five hundred percent. And what we're talking about is, is policy going from two thousand five hundred dollars to five exactly. thousand dollars. So, and yeah. the, the, the serv- I, th- I think, what this has driven, it really has driven a huge investment in the service. Component of the product which is delivering real value to customers. I think there's absolutely right to pick up on that delineation between small, medium, and large. And you're absolutely right; you can't talk about this generically across those classes. I think at the small end of the market, I think there's growing confidence that the level of pricing for attrition is reaching rate adequacy now, at least in the in the current environment. We're still projecting claims inflation into twenty two, and therefore we'll be adjusting according to our projections on claims inflation. But I think that is a, a more sustainable stable market than maybe you get in the large corporate end
0: is that just severity getting worse or is it just more expensive to adjust and fix these claims the claims are principally
2: severity i mean ransomware that's the, the real focus the, the frequency has actually gone down on ransomware because the old game was to hit as many targets as you could possibly hit and tap them up for a very small amount now it's about harvesting a number of credentials and then finding targets that are valuable and doing a really if you like good job on them making sure that you destroy their backups so you exfiltrate data so that you can demand bigger and bigger ransom, so it's, it is a severity-driven problem right now.
0: You've got all of the capabilities. Are you happy to go into these primaries where the clients are really, really going to need you? We're talking about bigger clients, I know, David. Now, the ones who do have large excess layers who want to buy seven hundred fifty billion-dollar policies, if they can. Are you happier to go into those primaries? Obviously, because you're going to have to really grapple with these risks. And does it really mean anything being in excess of two hundred million if you're with a global multinational?
2: We've always been a primary market. That is our principal place of operated. In cyber, we've been a primary market for companies of all sizes, small, medium, large, for 20 years. And we've always maintained integrity in our product, and we've always maintained solid loss ratios. So, yeah, we're there. We're absolutely committed to it. We're not alone in that. It's just the pool
0: is much smaller than it was. I think We shouldn't talk about cyber too much, but probably one last one on that. that I read something recently. There was some research that the cost of systemic cyber losses isn't as bad as people have thought.
2: Is that encouraging? All good news in cyber will be readily accepted. I think what you're alluding to is that there have been a number of events in 21, some in 20. And when you look at those events, and I'm thinking particularly events like Kaseya, where essentially they were what a scenario might portray as the Armageddon. A commonly used piece of technology with a major vulnerability that's exploited at scale, deploying ransomware across millions of businesses, and the reality is those events so far have proved to be less costly than one might have
0: expected now it would be incredibly naive do you get the economies of scale effectively that you can yeah, solve all the, the problems quickly the, a yeah, problem
2: there are a number of there there are a number of pieces of play and I j- should just say it would be incredibly naive to think that off the back of that, we can assume that the 1 in 100 or the 1 in 200 is far better than we thought. But what we can do, Mark, to your point, is to question some of the assumptions that underpin some models. And the modelling industry and Property Cat is still developing, let's be really clear here, and that's got a bit of a head start on cyber. And there's been a huge investment in cyber modelling, but there are still very different models that have very different assumptions, including insurer's own models. Uh, Clearly, one assumption that I suppose has played out in some of the models is demand search, right, because it's a very common property cat concept. What we found in every single event we've dealt with in cyber is you get the reverse of that, because you don't have to do the level of root cause analysis if you know exactly what happened on one particular event, that you get tools developed by Microsoft and Google and Amazon for free. So the cost of handling the individual claims within an event is far lower than you would have on standalone. That's just one example of many things that we're learning as these events happen. And it's right that models start off by being cautious, and wait till they actually see real evidence
0: that underpins that.
2: We're starting to see some green shoots, not saying it proves anything. So it's
0: the advantage of everything being digital, that it's not timber joists and tarpaulins and plumbers that get much more expensive after a loss. These things are scalable.
2: Yeah, technology and data is a very, very different asset to physical property. And it should be modeled different. And and, and to be clear, obviously, a number of modeling companies do take that into consideration. But when you look at the tail projections between different third-party models, they are wildly different. And our job, I suppose, is to really understand that, to unpick that and really learn what drives it. Because the key to unlocking capital in this really important class of business is understanding that part of the exposure in more detail and being able to give people confidence around it.
0: What other classes in 2022 are you looking to for growth and for investment?
2: So right now, we operate across roughly 20 different classes of specialty insurance. And we're lucky because last year, as I think Dave said at the very opening of this, they all grew impressively, I mean, over 20%, almost all of them. And really, that's because where where we focus our energy is typically in new emerging lines of insurance. The obvious example is, is cyber. But we're big in IP, we're big in transaction liability or, or reps and worries. These are new emerging classes of insurance with huge inherent runway, the kind of classes of insurance of the future. So they have a natural growth rate. We also operate in some more established lines of insurance, e and PC. and c But where we focus there is in more emerging industries buying those classes, whether that be digital healthcare, FinTech, life sciences, technology so all of those emerging industries which themselves are inherently growing very very rapidly and there's a real paucity of product for those kind of businesses so when those kind of businesses like podcasters are looking for insurance they really struggle digital content providers struggle to find. Them. so we're constantly investing and in building out new products for emerging industries and emerging class of insurance and, and that's where we'll apply a lot more effort and energy so if you think about maybe a, a new focus going forward, the world of retail has changed as we all know. Let's face it, during the pandemic, everyone's been buying everything online. I mean, Amazon has this huge marketplace of millions and millions of online sellers, literally millions and millions of online sellers, all needing insurance. And, and therefore, if you look at our P&C team, that's an area they really specialise in. So it's the
0: new virtual marketplaces and sellers. CFC, I've always known it as being a techie company, and obviously you sort of insure techies. You've been invested in it at a valuation that is more akin into a tech company than an insurance company so I'm not sure if you want to call yourself an insure tech but you sort of are and obviously a lot of this new investment is earmarked towards technology and developing your own technology so how much do you see yourselves as a technology company and if that's the case would you ever think of being a company that can sell technology to other people? and to other people in the insurance market, for example.
2: So I in a simple sense, we sell insurance for a living, therefore we're insurance business. It's just we do that using lots and lots of technology. So I'll, Mark, I'll let you work out what we should be called, but we essentially sell insurance and not technology. I think it's an important point. We have built a phenomenal amount of proprietary technology. As I said, we have a completely unique proprietary platform that trades multiple lines of insurance in multiple countries around the the world uh, and handles claims and all the infrastructure that goes with it. And we build our own technology because we think it's really important to own and control the core parts of our value proposition and our competitive advantage. So in in a simple sense, why would you license that to your competitors? But maybe more importantly than that, I think um, it's actually easier and quicker to build your own technology than to try and build technology for other people. So if we're building our technology for other people, we have to work out what those hundred customers might want to do with it. It actually takes you a lot longer. It's a lot harder to build deeper technology Going that way, so, so we do it because it means that we're much, much more agile. The other thing is, we don't want to worry about other people's product roadmaps. We have our own product roadmap that we need to be 100% in control of. Our business has been built upon. Our future is built upon agility, being able to react and respond quicker than our competitors. Being able to react to changes in the market environment within our own business, our own strategy,
3: and controlling our own technology allows us to do that. And it's interesting, actually, because. Uh I don't want to name any names obviously but i mean not that they would probably see this as a bad thing necessarily but if you look at any of the startups of scale in our industry from the last few years i don't think any of them have taken on the challenge of building their own technology they talk about their partnerships like that's a great thing they've got this partnership but as graham says you have a partnership it doesn't matter how deep it is you're not in control of that other company's queue and you can't keep your innovations to yourself so you can't innovate like we do and you can't control your roadmap like we do but you do you haven't built your own version of excel spreadsheets there, have
0: you <laughs> we, no, we, we're, smart enough, yeah, we're smart enough <laughs> we're
2: smart enough to leverage out uh, of third party components it's most definitely.
3: Various tools. <laughs> so you only
0: build the bits that you know you can't get anywhere else and you'd have to go and pay someone to Build it bespoke anyway, so you might as well build it yourself. Is that more? Yeah, way we, yeah, describe yeah. It? we don't.
2: We don't build commodity technology, and obviously we license lots of third-party libraries and license third-party APIs, so we're not reinventing the wheel. Hopefully, we're reasonably smart about what we build.
0: It's not for sale to third parties. It's your comparative advantage.
2: Absolutely. And I think it will forever remain that way, even though it's a bold thing to say, you
0: know. <laughs> Never be definitive about anything. 2021 was the year of ESG, of another emerging phenomenon. I just want to, you being two very bright minds in, in this industry, what do you think about it? Do you think of it as a massive business opportunity or do you just think of, oh, no, there's some horrible compliance thing I'm going to have to build another proprietary system to deal with?
3: I think it is an opportunity for us, actually. I think... Um the Brexit vote showed us that unbridled capitalism is not working. I think you see the racial, gender, environmental injustice movements are so raw that clearly change isn't happening fast enough. Then you marry those thoughts with the fact that over 50% of CFC staff are under 30 and the fact that as a very big part of our culture here has always been to try and remain or be young and relevant and current and forward-thinking. One of the reasons why I passed the reins of running the complicated bit of the shop to Graham was I was starting to feel old, frankly, for (laughs) doing it. Uh, And he's a young buck. (laughs) So, yeah, I think it is really important to us. And I think for those reasons, it feels more natural for us to want to be at the forefront of ESG in our industry. And so that's what we'd like to do. I think that's a challenge we can take up and deliver on. We've done lots and lots of little things, So we've seen that venture from Beasley. Is that the sort of thing that
0: might appeal to you? Some extra green capacity, ASG friendly capacity to come in to play if the client fulfills all the right uh, criteria?
3: Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I wasn't thinking so much along those lines. I'm thinking more along the lines of just the organisation we are. You know, being at the forefront of the EES and the G as a business because we've got young people for this is important too and so on. Yeah I mean I think the product side of ESG is something that we're interested in as well but uh, we just set up our first Lloyd syndicate. <laughs> Beasley are probably a
0: little bit ahead of us. Well, at you're quite moment. fast so you said you're agile you could have a second Lloyd syndicate quite quickly if you've done the first it comes, makes it easy to do the second one and third doesn't it? Yeah,
3: absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly not easy the second time around, I'm sure.
0: So again, I'm going to have to I'll pin you down and say no immediate plans. And then this time next year, we'll, you'll be saying, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, the ESG syndicate. Yeah. <laughs> no comment. Yeah. <laughs> I think I've come to the end of the list of all my questions. But I just want to, yes, I think more generically ask you what, what you're looking forward to most in 2022. Time seems to move faster here in your offices than it does in most other places. So what are you expecting and what are you looking forward to the most?
2: We have so many exciting projects and initiatives that we've been talking about for some time. I think 2022 is a year really delivering on many material projects. And a lot of that obviously is within technology. There's some extraordinary stuff that we're doing with not simple process automation, but intelligent automation. I think that maybe not 22, but three, four, five, it's gonna be the year of API distribution. We're seeing a massive surge in digital distribution of product, not just at the obvious end, at kind of high-volume personal lines where it's been in existence for some time, but even now in complex commercial insurance. This opportunity to be a market leader in autonomous underwriting, kind of automated digital underwriting of complex specialty insurance products, that's the future. I think the business that can get that right with the broadest, most intelligent, automated footprint will win the the game in five to ten years. We've got a lot of stuff you're going to see from us in the next 12, 18, 24 months on that, so I'm excited about it.
0: You're not putting it in the camp of saying it's far too difficult. These high-value, low number of contracts, you still believe that they will eventually be automated like everything else?
2: Absolutely. It's far too difficult. That's why we're doing it. That's the fun of it, right?
3: David, what are you looking forward to most? I think mine overlaps with Graham in, in that the move towards automation really interesting i mean you know we liken it a little bit our underwriters right now is a little bit like when you're driving your tesla along the road it tells you if you're drifting into the next lane it tells you if you're getting too close to the car in front but you still got your hands on the wheel and for a lot of our underwriting that's exactly where we want it to be right now but slowly slowly over the next few years some of it is actually going completely autonomous we'll no doubt have the odd crash just like Tesla have had the odd crash. (laughs) In fact, we've already had a couple. But it's a really, really exciting and interesting journey. And I think if you align that, I suppose the different angle I'd put on it also is, I'm really excited with what we can do in the emitted space in the United States. We've got a great platform there in New York and San Francisco, and that is probably more what you would call an an insure tech, in that everything it does is done like this. And so it is very, very exciting. By the way, we're not averse... I I sort of didn't chuck my two pennies worth in earlier. We're not averse to being called an insure tech. I think we just feel sometimes... And in in the United States, an insure tech is a perfectly wonderful thing to be. I just feel in this country, it's slightly... You infer from insure tech startup, which we clearly don't feel. And I think you also infer in this country from insure tech the tech label that there's a sort of techs tend to feel that the insurance business is fundamentally broken and they're going to disrupt it and change it and i don't think we feel that we feel maybe we're more like a challenger brand and actually there's loads of things that the market including ourselves could do better tomorrow than we do today but it's not fundamentally broken well so if you're
0: a u.s focused insurtech surely the, the next thing that would happen in a few years is the ipo on nasdaq would that happen businesses like yours seem to have now been able to grow remain private almost ad infinitum. Is that more your philosophy?
3: I think you're right, as in the private equity world has managed to find ways where businesses can get bigger and not list. So that's obviously a fact, pretty much. We could have listed this prior year, 2021, and we thought briefly about it, but staying private and looking to new private equity capital felt like the right thing for us to do. But I suppose we've always felt that we build this business with optionality in mind, so we'll always build this business to have as many options in the future as we can. But right now, it feels like, as Graham said earlier, we've got a whole heap of things to do, hundreds of projects to deliver on, a wonderful pair of backers in EQT and Vitruvian, EQT, by the way, very long on ESG, one of the main reasons we picked them. So we're very, very comfortable in our own skin. You were saying that capital isn't working for everybody, but it seems to be
0: working for you. So long may it continue to do so. And uh, I hope you'll come back and speak to the Voice of Insurance very soon. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having us. Thanks very much, Mark. Lovely to see you. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost-effective, so get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com